grind. Frank, welcome back. Here we are again, Ugly Pike Podcast on the Outdoor Journal Radio Network. We got another special guest today who uh, gave us a thesis on musky fishing and, and, and many <laughs> other things that uh, I prepared for for the last uh, two days. I'm not sure where you're at, but maybe leave it to me if you need the in more in-depth stuff. But, you know, Mr. Pete Bostelman, thank you so much for coming on the show and, and, and the preparation you put in advance is very uh it's highly appreciated hey my pleasure guys thanks for the invite buckle uh, up kids this is gonna yeah. be this is gonna be oh, good yeah. Fun. oh yeah <laughs> all right chris i i can only throw it to you we have to be structured today otherwise this is going to be a disaster well okay i uh, let's let's just go i mean you why don't you share more a bit about this journey that you have you know we can get a bit of background for our musky fishing this from kind of the moment you sure. you you, you caught your first muskie, and, and I believe it was Lake Scugog. Yes. And then yes. how that kind of shaped your muskie experience and your journey in life and where you are today. Um, sure. Maybe that's a good starting point so the listeners kind of understand where we're coming from, and then we can start picking into some of the incredible details and, and knowledge that you shared in your bio and, and technical uh, briefs that mm-hmm. you gave us. Sounds good. I could talk for an hour and a half just on that, though. So, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I uh, I started off. Uh, my parents had a, a house on Lake Scugog and, you know, right from when I was, uh, I think two years old, we moved up there and started fishing off the dock at a very young age. I think I was three or four when I started, you know, fishing for panfish and that. And on my sixth birthday, whole family in the yard, you know, big barbecue, June the 2nd, which happened to be musky opener. I'm on the end of the dock casting a, a red and white daredevil and bam, I hook into a musky and, you know, a little spin cast reel eight pound test or whatever it was. And I fought this thing for, you know, at least three hours, probably three minutes, but felt like three hours at the age of six. And I uh, landed it in front of my entire family, you know, first muskie I'd ever caught on my sixth birthday, family there, June 2nd on the opener. And uh, believe it or not, back then, 28 inches was the uh, the legal size on Scugog. This would have been 83. Wow. And uh, yeah, yeah, we've come a long way. And, uh, so, I mean, I didn't know any better. Big fish meant food, right? And, uh, my, my uncle Bill was, you know, probably in his seventies and he was a, a master musky flayer because that's what you did back then. And, uh, he cleaned it up and we ate it for dinner. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I say, we've come a long way, but that, uh, that fueled the passion for me, you know, that first musky was like, oh man, like this is, this is where I want to be. And, uh, after that, every year. The, uh, the muskie just kept, uh, kept racking up off the dock. I had my own boat when I was 10 years old, believe it or not. I can't even think of kids at 10 out on their own right now fishing. But uh, yeah, 10 years old out there in my own boat, 14-footer with a, with a four-horsepower Evinrude on it. And uh, just started racking them up. You know, a lot of little ones. There was not a lot of big fish back then that I remember, or at least that I could get into. But uh, yeah, I mean, literally, you know, 50 a, 50 a year for many, many years. Uh, I got into bass at about the age you caught, of 15, you caught 60 musky a year. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? From nice. the time I was probably about 12 until probably 24, 23, 24, it was probably an average of 40 to 50 musky a year. And this is all in the Kawartha's or in Skugog, believe it or not. Yep. So, uh, yeah, at the age of 15, I got into bass fishing and, uh, that was great. You know, I was, um, rookie of the year in one organization when I was 15 years old, the youngest ever, and uh, absolutely kicked ass. But it just wasn't musky fishing. You know, I kept going back. You know, we'd be, uh, we'd be fishing a weed flat and I'd have a nice musky follow my spinnerbait in. And my partner's like, oh, damn musky, you know, get that thing away. And I'd be figurating on the back deck for this sucker in the middle of a bass tournament. So it was pretty clear that uh, <laughs> bass was not my thing. I was a musky guy. Um, you know, kept going with the multi-species stuff until probably about uh, about 2008 that was where i said okay enough of the bass and the walleye you know i'll do it when muskie's not open 
But at that point, it was like, okay, game on. Let's do it. Let's go after some bigger fish. And uh, from there, it uh, oh man, it spiraled out of, out of control after that. And uh, you know, Muskies Canada came around 2012, became a, a member of the Kawartha Lakes chapter. Right away, I got onto the FMZ 17 committee, which was awesome. Learned a lot there. And after that, became membership director, release log director for several years, and which eventually led to national and uh, membership director for national, and then president for two years. And then, uh, then along came the day job, the uh, you know the the big money in the in the in the city, and not having a lot of time for for anything else. And fortunately, I gave up a lot of that, but uh, still fishing actively and learning every day. So, Pete, you kind of you kind of been part. Like you described your your the, the beginning as mostly Kawartha areas your whole I mean the, the first part of your let's say your musky career um, how how was that region kind of connected you into the broader musky world and like that seems like being able to catch fifty muskies a year that's a great start not a lot of people have that at their fingertips you know it's usually one musky and uh, you don't see them for years especially when you're first starting out so. Explain a bit how that that kind of region you were in helped expand your interest and grow you into bigger waters, and we'll get into all sure. that uh, uh, in more detail. But just in general, uh, if you could speak to that, mm-hmm. yeah, sure. So about 2008, when I really started to to go after muskie primarily and not as a you know a one of those uh, sub catches, if you will, I uh, I noticed that my average size was only, you know, 32, 34 inches in, in Skugog. And I thought, you know what, there's got to be bigger fish out here. There's got to be something I'm missing. Cause I know there's, you know, high forties in Skugog. So at that point I started to do a lot of research. I got out of the shallows. I got out of the, the, the nurseries as I call them. Now I started fishing the mate, the mid lake stuff, the big weed beds, the basins. Now I, again, like Skugog has a maximum depth of 22 feet. So, uh, not like I'm fishing deep, deep water. But deeper water, I'm fishing, you know, 10 foot, 12 foot weed lines. And uh, all of a sudden, my, my average size went up from, you know, 32, 34 inches up to 44 inches. And I think it was 2009 was my best year on Skugog ever. I got 50 fish and my average size was just under 44 inches, which is pretty, pretty darn good for out here. But again, there's got to be more, right? So at that point, I started fishing balsam, started fishing North Pigeon. And started racking them up on those lakes as well, which then led me to, okay, I need bigger. So started fishing Moira, started fishing Stokoe, Georgian Lake, Georgian Bay strained fish, you know, in these little inland lakes. And next thing you know, I'm, I'm getting 50s. I got a personal best 52 on, uh, on Moira. And again, though, I want bigger. Got to go bigger. <laughs> and at that point, you know, started to fish with Johnny Dadson and uh, hit Georgian Bay for the first time ever. Saw the potential out there. And since then, I've never looked back, man. It's Georgian Bay or nothing now. Wow. So, so that, that you just described that virus or the musky oh. virus. Once it's inside you, it slow, slowly gets yeah. to that point where you want more and more and more. And then it's just, yeah, man. You, yeah, you totally, yeah. You, the arc is perfect there. Yep. I'm curious about that statement. It's Georgian Bay or nothing. And uh, I have a uneasy feeling that maybe the best trophy hunters are saying the same thing. Or are they not? Like, why do you say that? Why Why do you leave out Ottawa River, St. Lawrence? Why Why do you Why do you dismiss them? I don't. Uh, am so, I? Is there something I'm not onto here? Uh, okay. So, so personal preference. I fish St. Lawrence quite a few times now. I just can't get into it. I'm not big on the crowds. I'm not big on uh, <laughs> you know the the police boats flying by and the helicopters and the and the the, the the police dinghies with the 50 cal machine gun on the front. I just couldn't get used to that. I'm, I'm yeah. at, not at ease when I'm out there. I'm always on edge. Yeah, that's a good point. That's you know? a really good point. We, we, we're always followed by helicopters when oh, we're man. in, in the, in the winter season, they're always over top of us. And sometimes they're yeah. shining lights on us. And yeah, we exactly. always get, we always get tied up by tag teams and stuff like that. So I, yep. that's actually a really good point. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm just, I, I, you know what, as much as I'm into it for the, for the queenie, for her, yeah. I, uh, I want to be at ease and I want to be able to concentrate on the fishing, not on, you know, not getting shot or robbed or whatever. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. uh, French river, I've got a huge love for the French, especially the middle French Wolseley Bay that, uh, that place has come on strong the last few years. I'm not saying I'm going to get a world record out of that place, but, uh, but there are 58s in there. There are some really nice fish in there. 
So that that would be a second place for me, other than uh, than Gbay. Why not the upper? That 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 surprises me too. Yep. So I haven't actually ever fished the upper, believe it or not. That's gotcha. uh, that's that's on the list. Hopefully this year. Hopefully this fall I'll get out there. What about uh, northwestern Ontario? All the all the lakes up there where there's some world class musky waters. Do you do you hit there? I have not. No. Bucket list. Just have not had the opportunity. I uh, I've got a pretty uh, pretty crazy work schedule. It's hard for me to you know to get enough time off to to make it worthwhile. And uh, between the fishing and uh, a lot of hunting and family and everything else, it's just been a matter of time. Just can't get out there. But eventually, give it a give it a year or two. Very cool. Yeah, surprised some of the answers, but uh, it makes perfect sense to me. Guys, give me uh, give me give me five seconds. My parents just showed up, and they're about to bust into this cottage, and it's gonna it was a dog, so <laughs> all hell's gonna break loose unless I stop them uh, preemptively. So give me a second. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> That's Pete, awesome. Let's just keep it going. I mean. Yeah. That's uh, so okay. So something I'd like to know about uh, Georgian Bay is you're talking about you know crowds and stuff like that. Do you pretty much just stay off the bay on the weekends then, or do, are you finding isolated spots um, that you know that you like to go to that pretty much boaters and leisure people don't congregate? How does that work? So a little bit of both. Um, I choose my days to go to G Bay based on the weather and completely not what you're thinking. I am looking for 20, 30 K wind days. I love the wind. Almost every one of my good days on the Bay has been in crazy wind, crazy weather. So usually when I'm out there on a weekend, it's uh, there's not a lot of other boats because you know, everyone uh, stays away from the Bay when you hit 15 K it seems. Mm. But uh, then there's always, you know, if I, I launch in honey Harbor, you can fish, you know, the Honey Harbor area, you can go up Cognachine, Musquatch River, or you can head across to the Blue Water over to the Sound. Like the the possibilities are, are endless out there, which is which is awesome. I love that. Okay, so something I think I saw that you wrote about uh, trolling less and less, or people trolling less and less. Um, does that mean you're casting in these windy conditions? Yeah, you bet, big time. Wow. Yep. Okay. I, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll probably talk a, a lot about the wind later. That's something that I've really picked up on is uh, is wind conditions and what it does to the fish. But uh, I've just noticed that more and more that trolling is not working as well as it once did. It seems these fish are either conditioned to it. You know, they've been caught trolling. They know the sound of a boat, a motor, sorry. I'm not sure if that's what it is, but uh, more and more I'm going the casting route. And my uh, my success has gone up and up since. Uh, it surprises me as, as someone who started fishing with a guy like Johnny Dadson. That's yeah. quite a statement, <laughs> eh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He doesn't like fishing with me anymore. <laughs> I bet it's, it sounds like it, right? He's uh, yeah, he's predominantly a, a troller for All the listeners. Time. And so, uh, so, so, Pete, I gotta, I gotta ask the question. Then, how do you reconcile that with the fact that you watch muskies come up and smash um, a prop wash uh, um, lure? Mm-hmm. So you know that clearly. Um, it just kind of nullifies the fact that they're scared of the motor. And so I've been trying to understand how you can, you know, mm-hmm. yep. rationalize that the muskie are getting accustomed to the, to the boat or the motor and it's keeping them away. Yep. Good question. So I, I've, one thing I've found is that on the really highly pressured lakes that I'm not even seeing those prop wash fish being caught anymore. I, uh, mm. you know, Skugog at one time, there was nobody out there, but me, yeah, I was smashing them with two feet of line out absolutely destroying them out here same with pigeon at one point balsam at one point and then as the pressure turns on and they're seeing more and more baits all of a sudden i'm not getting that anymore i'm getting them long lining or you know getting them and then switching to casting and then those same areas where i was catching them trolling before and i'm not getting them now i switch over to casting pick those same areas apart and bam 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 putting fish in the net so to me you know, there, there's always going to be a muskie that's going to eat a, a bait trolled past them. You know, if they're hungry, you know, like a Frank, a, a famous guy named Frank, Frank Shelton once said, when they're hungry, they'll eat a monkey wrench. But, uh, <laughs> that's great. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, but yeah, I've, I've converted over, man. I'm, uh, I'm probably still 50, 50 because there are those days when, you know, the grind is on and it's like, okay, I got a troll here. Cause I'm going to go nuts. But, uh, but yeah, I love the casting. I'm, I'm really switching that way. I, I I gotta tell you, Chris. I just I'm back and forth. I uh, the times that I fished with Johnny Pete, um, he made me fall in love with with trolling. I gotta yeah. tell you, oh, I'm yeah. not gonna lie. Yeah. You know, oh, it's know. just 
it's just something about you know i'm in the boat with him and with alex our our buddy and you know it's just it's just our groove you know what i mean although the best fish i ever caught probably in my life was casting with him so um but it's just it's a thing you know how scientific it is and i just got to appreciate that part of fishing uh but then you know uh someone at the door what was that noise chris <laughs> uh i don't know if that was our Mike, software i'm telling you i'm back that's all i'm just telling you I'm uh, back. okay <laughs> um but then you know chris uh on Nipissing a couple of weeks ago i got you know i got slammed so hard you know mid-retrieve casting and it was just you know time of my life so i mean i to me it's, it's all great yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah i think i think pete that like trolling seems to evolve with the day of the like Okay, there's certain circumstances that you just need to troll because it's so hard to cast, and I think it's fitting in those situations. And then also in the day when it and when you're casting primarily for the day, and there's moments where you need to take a break or yeah, you need to sure. cover uh, long pieces of water and it just or, or big areas of water, and you think this is you know going to be a bigger or a better approach to do that. Mm-hmm. Trolling makes sense, but most of us go in with the mindset we're casting right, and then trolling sure. will evolve. As we as the day develops and the conditions develop and how how we adapt to the day of of, of musky fishing out there because you know a lot oh, of us definitely. put in those those ten so, hour days. Do so you let, see it the same way? Oh, I do. So let me tell you what I use trolling for. If I'm fishing new water and I want to do some charting, I want to check it out, get the feel for it. I will always start trolling. Troll it up, you know, auto chart it on the hummingbird, get the feel for the land. Hopefully, get some hits, get a few data points. Once you've trolled long enough and you start to get all those data points, you're going to start to see patterns. At that point, I'll put the put the Dakota away and I'll start casting those spots. Once I've put something together and and you know come up with a bit of a strategy, but I always start out trolling. And also, if I'm fishing water that's uh, you know the blue water, let's say let's say I uh, you know I'm fishing point of barrel and I say screw, I'm getting out of the inland here, or out of the the harbor, I'm going to head out into the blue water. I always troll. And try to look for those patterns, look for the bait fish. And then uh, once I see something I like, then I'll go back, pinpoint it, and start casting. So there is still a place for trolling, don't get me wrong. It's, uh, it is still a big part of my game plan. In the heart of Canada's great outdoors, where fishing is more than just a pastime, it's a way of life. There's a brewing company that strives to represent the true essence of Canadiana. Introducing the Ugly Pike Brewing Company, born from a passion for celebrating the moments that define us as Canadians. Ugly Pike Brewing Company is more than just a brewery. It's a tribute to the timeless tradition of fishing passed down from generation to generation. Crafting a crisp and easy-drinking beer, they honor the angler's commitment to the environment with a zero-waste philosophy. Just as campers, cottagers, and anglers care for the places they cherish, Ugly Pike Brewing Company makes every brew with sustainability and environmental stewardship in mind. Head to UglyPikeBrewing.com today to order online or use our interactive retail location map. everybody, I'm Angelo Viola. And I'm Pete Bowman. Now, you might know us as the hosts of Canada's Favorite Fishing Show, but now we're hosting a podcast. That's right. Every Thursday, Angela and I will be right here in your ears, bringing you a brand new episode of Outdoor Journal Radio. Hmm. Now, what are we going to talk about for two hours every week? Well, you know there's going to be a lot of fishing. I knew exactly where those fish were going to be and how to catch them, and they were easy to catch. Yeah, but it's not just a fishing show. We're going to be talking to people from all facets of the outdoors. From athletes. All the other guys would go golfing. Me and Garth and Turk and all the Russians would go fishing. To scientists. But now that we're reforesting and letting things through, it's a perfect transmission environment for Lyme disease. To chefs. If any game isn't cooked properly, marinated, or you will taste it. And whoever else will pick up the phone. Wherever you are, Outdoor Journal Radio seeks to answer the questions and tell the stories of all those who enjoy being outside. Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What brings people together more than fishing and hunting? How about food? I'm Chef Antonio Maleca, and I've spent years catering to the stars. 
Now, on Outdoor Journal Radio's Eat and Wild podcast, Louise, Hooksat, and I are bringing our expertise and Rolodex to our real passion, the outdoors. Each week, we're bringing you inside the boat, tree stand, or duck blind and giving you real advice that you can use to make the most out of your fishing game. You're going to flip that duck breast over once you get a nice hard sear on that breast. You don't want to sear the actual meat. And it's not just us chatting here. If you can name a celebrity, we've probably worked with them. And I think you might be surprised who likes to hunt and fish. When Kit Harrington asks me to prepare him sashimi with his bass, I couldn't say no. Whatever Taylor Sheridan wanted, I made sure I had it. Burgers, steak, anything off the barbecue. That's a true cowboy. All Jeremy Renner wanted to have was lemon ginger shots all day. Find Eating Wild now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Uh, Frank, you got, you, I have another question or you want to go ahead? No, I, I would like for you to lead this discussion today because there's so much information and, uh, you know what, I've got my points, but I'm sure you're going to hit them. And then at that point, I'll, uh, yeah, yeah, I'll okay. add my two cents. Let's yeah, let's rock it out. Well, I mean, you're just touching on this the transition here. So the, the transitioning from the fishing, the, the inland lakes to the big water musky, mm-hmm. and that's a significant change. And a lot of people, you know, have not done that yet if they're at the beginning of their musky journey so maybe if you could share some general insights into those differences and how people adapt into sure. that or like how that transition worked for you uh, because it's not something you can just do overnight right you can't go from school you can jump in the middle of you know uh, georgian bay you, you'll be you'll be shocked of oh, you know yeah. i mean oh, yeah. same with nipissing we, get, yeah. we, oh, got, yeah. we, we didn't realize how how powerful nipissing was um on that first day we arrived two years Two years ago, I think it was Frank, and yeah. we got crushed right off the water. So, yeah. you know, maybe share some of your insights in that transition. Sure. Number one, if you like catching fish, don't leave the Quarthas. Number one, you know, like, <laughs> come on. I mean, let's face it, man. You know, five days on the bay without seeing a fish from time to time. You know, probably <laughs> three, three to four fish on uh, days on average before you see a fish out there. But then it all comes alive, and and it's like, okay, yeah, now I know why I'm here. Um, don't be scared about your boat. If you've only got a 16 foot boat, you're fishing the inlands and you want to get out to Georgian Bay, don't be as scared. I mean, there's always a place that you can fish even a 14 footer out there. I've got a lot of buddies who head out to Honey Harbor every year in a 14 foot, a little 15 tiller. Don't be a, don't be afraid of the, of the big water. There's always places that you can get out of that wind, no matter, you know, which, where you're launching, where up the, uh, up the coast you're launching. There's always places to fish there. There's always opportunities. So don't, don't let that uh, scare you or, or deter you. Um, windy.com, Weather Network, these are your friend. You know, check them. Check out what the conditions are going to be. Check out where that wind's coming from. Plan accordingly. And uh, don't take on too much. Pick, up, pick one little area and learn that area. Learn it, learn it, learn it. You know, sort of move on from there. It's like a like a video game, you know, like you start out on one of these uh, like like zombies on Call of Duty, right? You got this little little board that you're on and you you know, you you figure out what's going on, you solve all the puzzles and then it opens up a bigger world to you and you start to to move into these other little areas as it as it's unlocked. Treat the the big water the same way. Don't take on too much because it will be really frustrating. There's a lot of water that's not uh, not worth looking at out there. Interesting. That- Interesting and, and familiar, right? I think Davin said the same thing, um, Pete. I don't know if you listen to the show or not, but we had Davin Heinbuck on. Uh, oh, nice. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago, awesome. and he just I'll have to listen you know, to that. great guy. Yeah, great guy. I, I I said even even at the end of it, it was one of my very favorite shows that we've ever done. But you awesome. know, he said the same thing, and and you know, getting familiar, drilling down, and getting familiar with areas and stuff is is really a smart play for musky fishing because if you start spreading yourself too thin, you're just mm-hmm. going to run yourself ragged. And I think. Oh, yeah. Like, especially if you're a new angler, the the nature of musky fishing, and Chris, you and I are learning this over the years. It, it takes a lot of failure to learn that the windows are going to open, mm-hmm. right? That's right. Like, this is a rhythm that good musky anglers understand, and it's like a lesser experienced angler could – you can really panic yourself out of this sport and say like nothing ever happens, you know, yeah. what's going oh, yeah. on. You know, we have such low success on our home waters, but like, I know I'm not putting the proper effort in on my home water. So I accept it. And quite mm-hmm. frankly, we love just getting out on the boat and, and getting hooks wet and that's lots of fun. But uh, you know what? Yeah. So, I mean, getting familiar with an area and waiting for those windows, those right uh, wind conditions or weather, like, like you say, Pete, and uh, that's what keeps you in the game. Big time. 
Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? Georgian Bay has a real sense of humor. I, I don't know how many uh, people I, I've, I've, I know now that have gone out there on the first time and got a 50, 52, 53 and gone, yeah, you know what? This is so easy. And then they go 10 years without seeing another one. But uh, that first time out there, she's uh, Mother Georgian Bay. She's got a hell of a sense of humor sometimes. Yeah, so, right. So Chris, while Chris and the- I know that all too well, right, Chris? What? Yeah, we do. Yeah, we got we got <laughs> no, we got slammed on there. Um, Georgian Bay started messing with us a half hour down the highway. That's how big of a sense of humor it had when we went there. But that's another story for another time. Awesome. <laughs> so, Pete, I, I mean, while we're on this topic, you, you even I, I went through your PowerPoint presentation, and, and and you, you know, maybe this is a good little segue here. You detailed the kind of chronicle or or um, starting point from from being a entry level musky angler to to the big leagues and i I was curious because we actually had this discussion last uh, podcast a a listener sent in a uh, question to us do you feel especially at the beginning that there's a homper barrier that prevents anglers from fishing musky especially if they haven't caught that you know that first lucky musky where they're like well what the hell is this i need more of this so like if you haven't caught that musky do you feel there's a barrier or a hump there for people to enter in to the to the to the kind of musky angling sport, considering it can be a bit intimidating in terms of you know the buy-in and like the, yeah. you know the fish of ten thousand casts and all that stuff. So maybe speak a bit about that. I I think you're right, but I think it's more of a safety aspect than anything that keeps people out of it. You know, people everyone has heard the the fables of you know the musky that uh, that bit somebody's foot or you know like that ate the guy's fish on the way in that you know the walleye that was on the, on the end of the line. They're, they're known as this ferocious fish and, you know, all these big teeth. And I think people are more scared than anything. I, I love getting new anglers out on the boat, people who have never caught one, and getting them their first muskie so they can see how easy it is. Going through proper netting and, you know, keeping the fish in the water and doing all the work in the net outside of the, outside of the boat. I've got a 20-second rule in my boat. That fish is not in the boat for more than 20 seconds ever. All the work is done outside. Everything's prepped and ready to go. But uh, I think that's the big thing is, is more the safety. But yeah, it is. I mean, it's a, you know, the fish of 10,000 cast is the apex predator. And uh, yeah, there definitely is that. I mean, I was lucky to get one at the age of six. I guess I didn't know any better at that point and never, uh, <laughs> never uh, had any fear of them after that. But uh, I mean, I'm, I'm 46. I've never had a hook in my hand, which probably helps as well. Because I Knock do, on wood. Yeah. Oh, yeah I'm, I'm sitting at it. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, for sure. My very first musky adventure, I put a top raider hook right through my wrist. Oh. Yeah, yeah. R- really close to my uh, radial artery, too. So that wasn't uh, – yeah. that was that was not fun. But uh, Dad, Dad's mm-hmm. got a great nine-aught story. Ask him to tell you that one. I will. I will. Yeah. Maybe, Chris, we're going to have to have him on the show sooner or later. So that maybe that'll be a good fish story, although he's got 100 million of oh, them. Oh, geez. So. Unbelievable. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah, right on. <laughs> cool. All right, Chris. Just Keep going. started. Keep going. Keep going. So let's step back a bit about you, – you mentioned your role in Muskies Canada, and I know this mm-hmm. is a really, a really important part and critical organization in the Huge. protection of muskies and muskie research. So how – how has your involvement with the organization, particularly, I guess, at a national level, influenced your understanding of musky fishing? And I, like on another level, how has it contributed to your success as an angler? I think it's opened the doors to uh, a lot of uh, really good, good rooms and a lot of a uh, lot of rabbit holes as well, if you will. Um, I've met so many great people through Muskies Canada over the years and, you know, gotten into their boats and fish with them been involved with uh with projects you know like all the way from the stocking of musky and simcoe at the very beginning you know all the way up to uh you know all the tagging studies and everything else and uh it's just it opens your eyes to the entire picture not just the fishing part but the the science the scientific part guys like gavin i mean just phenomenal we shared a hotel room at one of our agms and uh man the amount the amount i learned in that uh in that uh, few days there with him just amazing so, yeah, yeah, I think that's the big thing is, is the meeting of people getting out there and, uh, you know, talking at different chapters. I think I spoke at, uh, I think seven or seven or eight of the, of the chapters, a few different presentations I've done over the, over the years and just meeting everybody and 
yeah, it's been great. Amazing organization. You mentioned an interesting comment about when you when you're serving in, in that role about you know f- putting the focus on on the muskie as opposed to the drama yeah. and politics, which yeah. we can all appreciate. Oh, so, yeah. um, you know, how how did you address those challenges? You know, without getting into private details or whatnot, <laughs> but just in general, like yeah. y- you know what I'm saying? Yeah, long uh, long nights on the telephone talking to people and calming people down and uh, just trying to get everyone working as a team. <laughs> You know, like I'm telling you, there's a there's a lot of stress in politics, a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes. I'm sure Ryan Pickering's dealing with with some of that still right now. But uh, I'm laughing. I'm laughing because I'm aware. And uh, (laughs) it's you know what? It's like I don't know. I don't know what to make of it. You know, we had a caller uh, or sorry, we had a a listener write in about uh, we we addressed a question on our very last episode, the uh, our full full moon Friday uh, recap episode, which Chris, I, I just finished listening to and it's freaking awesome. I'm so happy the way this format is turning out as a side, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, he, he, he said, you know, he asked a question about the old boys club and all this, this and that. And it's like, you know, on its face, it's absurd, all this drama, but like, it kind of isn't because like, this is the, like, we're all serious. Everyone who's in Muskie's Canada is a serious angler who is more or less, I'm going to exaggerate a little bit, but we're pretty much devoting a decent part of our lives to hunting this fish, right? So it means sure. a lot to us, a lot of time, a lot of passion, a lot of time away from our families and stuff. So I understand the emotion involved, uh, but then you got the ego part of it too, which I think drives a lot of this because, you know, you 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 get a certain type of person that wants to hunt this fish and uh, that can create an oil and water effect. But at the end of the day, we're all just fishermen, fisherwomen, just trying to have a good time. Yeah, so that's right. it can seem a little silly too when it gets excessive. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. I, I, th- I think Pete, what you did is like, that's what you, you're get. You're, you're trying to direct things back to the core message of Muskies Canada, right? That's yeah. like, let's focus on the fish here. Let's focus on preserving and conserving and, um, educating the public That's on right. this incredible species as opposed to the behind the scenes stuff. So yeah. I, if you, I know that that in general is it, even in the corporate world is an, is, is an immense challenge. So um, I commend you if you had success in doing it, yeah, but I can understand I if I you kept hitting the wall. Yeah, no, I think I honestly did. I mean, the, uh, you, you talked about the old boys club. Well, I got to tell you, the old boys club are the best group of people I've ever worked with in my life. And uh, anyone who, you know, had issues with them, there might have been, you know, ego somewhere involved that that got into that. But uh, these old boys that that you know that were the founders of the club, you know, a lot of them have passed away now, unfortunately. But a uh, great bunch of guys with nothing but the muskie in mind. You know, with them there was no ego. It was all about the fish, all about the fishery, and making sure that their uh, the future of muskie fishing was was intact. And I had no issues with any of them. But uh, in, in general, really, really good experience. So happy that I stepped up. I didn't want to be president, by the way. I was the uh, the chair, and we didn't have a president for those two years. And I was sort of all in told. So I, I was already doing a lot of the, the duties of the president anyway. So I thought, what the heck? Let's jump in there. But I'm happy I did. It was it was a great two years and uh, amazing organization. Well, I think those I think the old timers that are no longer with us would be extremely happy uh, looking and seeing what. Uh, Muskies Canada has evolved into uh, on the on on the on the backs of, of their shoulders uh, for the last two years, especially this organization has taken a 180 degree turn. Yeah, they got beer now. Just, they got beer now, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> beer. Yes. Jeez, oh, too funny. But yeah, no, just a just a great executive committee, and uh, I mean, Pete, were you at the were you at the Odyssey this year? No, I was not actually. I was on vacation at the same time. Mm. I, I didn't mm. make it to it. It's been a, been yeah. a few years now. Yeah. Well, it was really something else. I was uh, really super impressed, and uh, everyone just had a great time. So it's good. good to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Let's keep her going, Chris. Keep her going. There's where can we go from there? Uh, I have a lot, but. I, I wanted to touch on, and maybe this will lead into a, um, a bait discussion, but you, you have an expertise and was part of your background in, in the custom Marabou blades. Yes. Uh, so maybe give us a history of that, like explain sure. the key elements there and how that has become such an important part of your fishing experience, because 
Um, you talked about the work ethic and, and I guess the passion that you're going to put into that. So that means it's something that is really, uh, you know, uh, close to you. So I imagine you, you really take a lot of care in constructing these things. So yep. maybe speak, speak about that for us. Pete, before you start, can I just say that the Canada themed bucktail that you tied last month yep. is one of the nicest I've oh, ever thanks. seen in my life. Oh, thank you. Oh, awesome. my God. It was just that. beautiful. Chris, I don't know if I showed that. To you. I think I did show it to you. When we were at NIP, maybe. I don't know. But as you were saying that, I'm sipping yeah. a cup with a big Canada flag in front of me, and I just picked it up. So the timing for that. Was <laughs> there you go. Amazing. There you go. All right, Pete. Go ahead. Yeah. So I uh, I started tying in 2014. Again, it was a good friend of Johnny Dadson's. And uh, he asked me one day, he said, hey, how would you like to start tying Marabou? I thought, hell yeah. I'm in. Show me. So uh, we had a few lessons, and uh, he sent me home with a bunch of the bag of marabou and hackle and some uh, some frames already pre uh, pre twisted, and I started playing around. And it probably took about a hundred before I had one that was even sellable. There's a, a lot of work that goes wow. into a marabou bait. The marabou is easy; it's the uh, the epoxy, that final coat, that final perfect uh, epoxy thread ball there that uh, that makes or breaks the bait. And uh, I finally got the hang of it and the baits were going really well. This was, you know, early 2015, right in the prime of, uh, of the Marabou and, uh, getting some big, big money for it. Did a little bit of retail at that point. And from there, just the baits got bigger and bigger. You know, I've, uh, I'm now putting eight, nine linear feet of Marabou into one of my big boot Adleys, eight or nine linear feet. If you, if, if you can imagine that that's, that's a lot, oh, a lot of birds, shit. a lot of turkeys going into some of these baits. You know, you can't can't even get your hands around them. They're they're so thick. Um, but yeah, it's uh, the more you tie, the more you learn about about the the bucktails, the more you really appreciate using them. I call them the finer things now, right? It's like a like a cohiba or or having a a lag of Ulan. It's uh, the finer things. When I throw one of them on, it's uh, it's a joy, just just like a Wishmaster would be, or any of these you know these amazing custom cranks. Okay, Pete. So you're you're talking about like nine, ten feet of marabou. And, and going into one uh, a bucktail, so how you know how big is that? Yeah. Well, what is like how how long is that? Are you have you're running two trebles? Um, yeah. Explain how yeah. how big of these how big these lures are getting when you're putting that much marabou on. Um, okay, so if you're wrapping your 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 you know fingers around them, your hand around it, you can barely touch from your uh, your middle finger to your thumb, if oh, wow. you will. If you're trying to gauge it, yeah, there's there's a lot of marabou there. We're talking two treble hooks. Usually I'm going eight aughts, top and bottom. And, uh, you know, anything from fluted eights all the way up to 13s for blades. They're, uh, they're considerable size. They're probably 14, 15 inches in length from, uh, from line tie to, to the end of the hackle. Well, Frank, I know you might be thinking this, but it's you know it's not it's not as uh, heated a debate as casting versus trolling. But what's your opinion on flashaboo versus marabou in in, in in effectiveness? And is there even uh, discussion? And they both work, and it's just personal preference. Personal preference. I think when the muskie are on, marabou outdoes the flash. When the muskie are not on, I tend to go flash over marabou. Uh, you know, those, those key moments when, you know, they're going to be firing, I'm, I'm throwing marabou all the time. I, I'm a, you know, there might be seven, 800 different models of, uh, of Dadson's out there. I've, I've got about four in my tackle box that I uh, have a lot of faith in. I didn't expect to hear that. Wow. Frank, cool. You there? Yeah. I'm here. Can you hear yeah. me? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Chris, yeah. you good? Yeah, we're good. All right. Yeah. So yeah, I was going to, like, do you guys want to talk, go into a bit of depth on the lure making now in the, in the baits? Because, um, you know, after your general bio stuff, you you have some real specifics and one of them is uh, about the baits. So we could start there or Frank, if you want to bring it somewhere else, just, you know, by all means. No, I, I'm fine with either. Uh, I think uh, we, we're going to get to all of it in time. So let's, okay. uh, we're talking about baits. Let's keep going. Yeah. So, sure. Pete, so obviously you, you see this coming, Pete. You talked about in your in your in your um, info about how important you believe color is in the bait selection, yes. and this is great because you know we've had general consensus from from a lot of great anglers like yourself that it's usually at the bottom of the totem pole for them in terms of color. Now, 
<coughs> especially when you're talking about confidence baits and let's say you have a, a confidence bait which is obviously a color and you throw that in multiple occasions and you're not really you're just you're not putting it on based on conditions you're putting it on based on color i mean based on uh, confidence and you're producing and i'm just trying to under, like understand why you think color matters and it's, and it's how funny. do you how do you determine uh what color at what time in what situation <laughs> so i let the fish determine that but the biggest thing i found it's not the color of the marabou or the bait it's the blade color that's important to me there are mm -hmm. years when painted blades will outdo your metallic blades 10 to 1 there's other years where, well, where they will not touch a painted blade. All they want is metallic blades. And it seems to go in a, in a year to two year cycles like that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you an example. Um, you know, back 2017, 18 were amazing years for me on the bay. Everything was on chartreuse and orange blades, painted blades. Could not catch a fish on, on silver, copper, smoke. All of a sudden, so, after so two Peter, years... Just yep. to jump in, if you if you're on a if you're in a bite window and they're biting on that yep. orange uh, pattern that you have, and your partner's yep. beside you throwing whatever the complete opposite, but you're in a yep. bite window, you're finding that even in those situations, yep. only you, you are bet. catching. Exactly. Wow. Yeah, and it's not just Georgian Bay. I've seen this on Balsam for many years. It was uh, Stan Smale, which was uh, one orange and one copper blade, and they were annihilating that. Nothing else would fire. As soon as I, uh, so my partner, Joe, that I was fishing with, my buddy there, he had caught, I think, four fish over 45 inches on Stan Smale. I had not had a sniff yet. I switched over to the exact same bait and bam, 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 it starts firing. Wow. Probably one of the best days to this, you know, to this day, one of the best days of fishing we've ever had out there. But they were so keyed in on one color out there, it wasn't even funny. Chris, this makes a lot of sense to us. Look how our trips always go. Like, as much well, as I hate to admit it, one person usually is catching all the fish on our trips, right? Like, yeah, it's, it's well. I, the reason yeah. why I brought that up, Pete, is we had a very similar situation. I was throwing um, an opposite lure to Frank, and his lure was just lighting things up. Um, mm -hmm. And I, you know, I wasn't bringing anything into the boat. And, you know, we can get into boat positions or whatnot, but I, I know from experience that when the, when the window is open, it doesn't matter yeah. where the hell you are on that boat. Uh, the fish are aggressive. They're ready to strike. And, and I just wasn't able to entice a strike. And, and this has been the reverse for us before. So can I attribute that to his pattern of color and blade? I, I don't know, you but it's, it certainly sounds like that's a possibility after what I'm reading from what you said. Yeah. I, uh, and again, by being a bait maker, by tying baits for a lot of people, I get a lot of requests. You know, I'm, I'm getting sometimes, you know, back when I was doing it for a living, when I was full-time making baits before I, uh, you know, became a, before I became an operations manager, I was pumping out, you know, thousands of baits in a year. And I had people all the time calling me, texting me, emailing me saying, Hey Pete, I need such and such color It is killing for me out here. And a lot of these people don't know each other, but they're all requesting the same colors to me on the bed. <laughs> so That's it's cool. like, huh, you know what? Okay, like, I'm going to give you an example because it's it's gone now. It's not really, it's, it still fires, but Dark Moon. It's a, a smoke and a nickel blade and then a black and a yellowy gold and silver skirt. Everyone was slaying on that about three years ago. Like everybody. I had people... You know, I had never talked to in person sending me emails saying, hey, buddy, I bought one of these Dark Moon at, at a show. I'm raking on it. Can you make me a few more of these? It's like, wow, okay, so, there's something to this. So, uh, you know, I, I get all these requests. Well, what do you think I do? Well, of course, I, I build one for myself, right? What would you do? Yeah. And go out to the bay and try it. And holy crap, look at that. It's working. It, it wasn't, uh, you know, a fluke. So I, I see these patterns year after year after year. So to but, say that color doesn't matter, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't believe that. But, but Pete, that pattern is developed from someone like uh, asking you to make a certain color, which is effective. What is the starting point in determining what color and blade combination is the effective pattern for that season or that moment? Like, how do you start understanding that when you, when you're like, is it just local knowledge? You have to be in, in, in time in, on water. 
time on water. Okay. Time on water. Yeah, for sure. Because every year seems to be different. There, there have been a few carry on carryover years where the same thing's working, but I got to tell you, like, like last year, I, and the year before that, I could not buy a hit on a colored blade on the bay. And I'm talking like I had so much confidence in colored blades from the, the years before that. Nothing. Like <laughs> nothing. Not a follow on a, on a colored, on an orange, on a, on a chartreuse. Nothing. And meanwhile, guys in the boat are, you know, pulling in 50s and, uh, and all kinds of, of follows on gold and copper. So, yeah, it, it, I'm telling you, from year to year, it changes out there. If you've got one preset thing in your mind that, oh, I've got to use this because I got a 55 out here on this three years ago. I'm telling you, it, yeah, it might come back into into play again in, in a few years, but uh, but you got to be uh, open to to trying different things out there. What a cool hack, quasi hack, eh, Chris? I, I never thought of it from the perspective of a bait maker that oh, yeah. you you could uh, gather such vital uh, data on what is working where based on the feedback and the demands of your marketplace. That is that is so cool. Now, one unfortunate thing is that, well, fortunate and unfortunate is that a lot of my customers of these big marabou baits, they're not on social media. They're not sharing their uh, their results and their fish picks. You know, they keep them private, you know, especially the guys in northern uh, Georgian Bay. They keep their stuff very private. So I'm getting all these pictures of fish that are being caught on my baits and all these requests. It's like, okay, there's something to this and, you know, I keep this to myself, you know, which colors they are and where and stuff and but uh, but you learn so much from it. It's it's awesome. Yeah, Pete, you, still, you definitely. Still, don't, you, I was going to say you definitely don't want to share that with the masses. Just with you know your yeah, good friends oh, yeah. and your most favorite pod, <laughs> podcast uh, hosts. <laughs> yeah, <there you> go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, yeah. Well, Pete, I'm still trying. I'm still struggling to figure out that. Like, I understand the time on water, but if you have your your selection of baits in the boat. How are you to determine when you're on the water? Is it like you need to understand that this particular pattern is working best in these conditions based on um, the the weather, the sun, the the clouds, the rain, uh, the, the 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 environment that you're in? You find that this particular pattern, you have to learn that there's a ratio or like a relationship between these blades and this uh, light uh, or or water depth or or, or water color, um, uh, water clarity. How are you making that decision when you're on the boat and you have 20 bucktails to choose from? <laughs> so believe it or not, it doesn't seem to matter what kind of a weather condition. There's only one exception to that rule that I'll touch on later, but it doesn't seem to matter if it's raining, if it's sunny, if it's cloudy, if they're onto painted blades that year, they're on a painted blades that year. And I, I don't, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, obviously you got two, three guys in the boat. You're going to try different things and try to, you know, run the gamut and figure out what's going on. But it always seems to be that that color for that year doesn't matter what the conditions are. Now, that being said, I use probably 95% black baits, all black. I don't use a lot of color on the actual bait. My only exception to that is white. There are some uh, some conditions where white overdoes black 10 to 1. But uh, But in general, it's all about that blade color. Sorry, so you're telling me that most of your baits have black skirts or white skirts? Yeah, yeah you got it. I, If you're wow. willing to share it with us, what is the condition of white being superior to black? Like, what is that variable? If you don't mind talking about it, if you, if you yeah. don't want to talk about it, that's good. <laughs> I'll give you a, yeah, no problem, because it's, uh, it's so time-based, it's not even funny. But you know those times <laughs> when you're out there and you know you shouldn't be on the water because there's this massive storm coming in and you know, you're casting and your line is staying in the air. It's not even sinking because there's so much static electricity. Mm. And, you know, you, you got the goosebumps and the hair on the back of your neck is standing because you know this is the, this is it. You're going to get her. That's yeah. when that's when I throw the white. I don't know. It's it's a visibility thing, obviously. They're, they're seeing that white on that black sky. It's it's yeah, they're seeing it coming. They're seeing it in the water. But that that's about the only exception for me. Other than that, pretty much everything I'm throwing, like Jack Burns said, you know, when Johnny, he asked Johnny for some custom baits and Johnny said, sure, what color would you like? He said, any color. I don't care what it is as long as it's black. <laughs> Jack Burns, man. Yeah. So, Pete, I, you, you think you think the fish are can see the lure in the water coming at uh, in the in the air coming at them? I think it's just a combination when you got black, black skies. I think they're seeing it coming through the air. They're seeing it better in the water. 
that, that's all I can think of. You know, yeah. why would whiteout do any other color just in those conditions? It's sure. just got to be a visibility thing. But yeah. uh, any other time, yeah, I'm, I'm running black. Um, a lot of lakes that are stained, I'd like to use uh, chartreuse blades during the day and then switch over to orange just before dark. That's been a killer for me on Skugog since I was a kid. Wow. Uh, I'm not sh- I'm not sure about Georgian Bay. Like I say, they se- they tend to be more, you know, color biased, and uh, doesn't really matter what time of day it is. They they like that color. Chris, I'm getting stressed out over here. I don't know about you. Yeah, I'm ready to <laughs> throw out a bunch of blades. Uh, I told you, man. I told you. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna you're gonna question everything. I'm gonna I'm gonna completely throw everything you know about musky fishing in the. Uh, in the but air today isn't that yeah. the beauty of this uh Pete? it like is every, I know. everybody you I talk know. to especially when they're when when you're at a level where all these people are are successful at, on the same levels yeah, and they take I completely know. different approaches and win and win yeah so yeah, it's, i know i know i love it i love it it's, that's what's what i love so much about musky fishing maybe it's you have to develop your own system and just believe in it right and just have all the confidence in your own system and, yeah. and stick to it and and you know the success will come but yeah and we're just talking about about bait colors right now wait till we start talking about the moon i'm really gonna blow your mind on that <laughs> one hmm. to build one of Canada's most iconic fishing lodges? I'm your host, Steve Nidzwicki, and you'll find out about that and a whole lot more on the Outdoor Journal Radio Network's newest podcast, Diaries of a Lodge Owner. But this podcast will be more than that. Every week on Diaries of a Lodge Owner, I'm going to introduce you to a ton of great people, share their stories of our trials, tribulations, and inspirations learn and have plenty of laughs along the way meanwhile we're sitting there bobbing along trying to figure out how to catch a bass and we both decided one day we were going to be on television doing a fishing show my hands get sore a little bit when i'm reeling in all those bass in the summertime but that's might be for more fishing than it was punching you so confidently you said hey pat have you ever eaten a drum Find Diaries of a Lodge Owner now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. As the world gets louder and louder, the lessons of our natural world become harder and harder to hear, but they are still available to those who know where to listen. I'm Jerry Olette, and I was honored to serve as Ontario's Minister of Natural Resources. However, my journey into the woods didn't come from politics. Rather, it came from my time in the bush and a mushroom. In 2015, I was introduced to the birch-hungry fungus known as chaga, a tree conch, with centuries of medicinal use by indigenous peoples all over the globe. After nearly a decade of harvest, use, testimonials and research, my skepticism has faded to obsession and I now spend my life dedicated to improving the lives of others through natural means. But that's not what the show's about. My pursuit of this strange mushroom and my passion for the outdoors has brought me to the places and around the people that are shaped by our natural world. On Outdoor Journal Radio's Under the Canopy podcast, I'm going to take you along with me to see the places and meet the people that will help you find your outdoor passion and help you live a life close to nature and under the canopy. Find Under the Canopy now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts.